Hello, welcome to Beyond Parenting. My name is Beth Hardy and I'm here to talk to you about parenting, what it means to you and different ways of looking at it. You may have broken free of the chains of the cycles that have been passed on to you from your family of origin, but are you stepping in the direction which is supportive of where you want to be? So we examine all things from things to do with partners, teenagers, younger kids, blowing your top, self-care and more. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Here we go. Hello, welcome to another episode of Beyond Parenting. It's wonderful to have you here. Moon Sage is our guest today, who is a mum to two high-functioning autistic kids. She talks about her time struggling, well, her kids struggling within the school system and how she fought and fought and fought to get them the education and support they deserved. And in the end, she began to home educate her youngest Please note, this is a trigger warning. There is discussion of teachers not doing a great job for her kids and there could be a feeling of her talking about all teachers. She is not talking about all teachers. We aren't doing that. We are definitely talking about the teachers who she encountered with her child. During our chat, we we use the terms neurotypical, neurodivergent, autistic. If you don't already know... People with autism is a term that used to be used and still is by people who aren't familiar with the more person-centered description of autistic people because autism does affect the entire person and not something that a person just has. I'd also like to place a little caveat here as well because both myself and Moon are um, neurotypical parenting kids who are neurodiverse, as far as we know anyway. And I know that that can be a problematic standpoint. We haven't, because this is just a one guest podcast, I can't provide a neurodiverse parent of neurodiverse kids within the same episode. Hopefully I will get a guest who is at some point and I look forward to speaking to them. But for now, I hope you enjoy this chat with Moon and let let us know what you think. On Beyond Parenting, we love to hear everyone's stories of how they got to where they are, right, and became a parent, how they worked through the challenges. So tell me, what has been one of the biggest challenges you found in your parenting journey? Having two children who are high-functioning autistic. Right. Beyond a doubt. Okay. So tell me, tell me a little bit about your journey into finding out about um, them being autistic and, and how that process was and then how things have evolved since that point. Um, very different for both of them. There's a big age difference between my two children mm-hmm. and that played a big part in it. My eldest is in his 20s and he wasn't diagnosed until he was 16. Finding out about his autism was more about the system recognizing his autism than us actually finding out about it. Mm -hmm. From the time he was a little boy, there were always markers. As a parent, you kind of know when there should be certain things that your child should be doing or there's certain things that are not exactly what they should be. 
And high functioning autism is something very different. It's not, it's not something that's very obvious. It's not something that shouts out at you. Yeah. It's very subtle. So and what were some of those subtle signs that you saw in your child then? Um, unlike other children, he was always very content to just play by himself. Mm-hmm. He didn't feel the need to always socialize with other children. Even when he was in school, he socialized, had classmates, which is what the teachers always said to me at parents' evening. He's got classmates, but you know, doesn't really have a very good best friend. He was content to be in his own world. He had his favorite things that he would just go on about. He would tell you everything about his particular topic of interest at the time. There were, when he wanted to know something, he would really, really find out everything about it he wasn't content until he knew the ins and outs about a particular Mm -hmm. topic he could tell you things that you you wouldn't know yourself as an adult there was a big difference in certain subjects in school so very very bright in in English and science he was always in the top set for those Mm -hmm. but he was always in the bottom set for math Mm -hmm. and that just didn't make sense because especially with the science so there, there were little little things that as a parent, you kind of know are not right. He was hyperactive, but there weren't any specific indicators. And that was one of the biggest things, because whenever I would pick it up with his teachers, they would always say, he has poor concentration and, you know, he can't sit still. And he doesn't show any typical markers. And he didn't. So, you know, for him, he doesn't have typical signs Mm. he just doesn't sit still so when he's agitated he walks Mm. rather than does what people would expect an autistic child to do and in a classroom that was always just disruptive yes so it took a really really long time before there was a teacher that said it doesn't make sense that he's Mm. in the set for this but he's in top set for that and this doesn't make sense and that doesn't make sense and mm. we can see where you're going with this so yeah okay we'll start looking into it okay so that was my eldest and what age was he when when you got to that point when they started looking into it um he was in secondary school he was in year nine so he was around 13 at the time right and there was first the educational psychologist that came in And that started the process of there are definitive indicators of some anomalies here that we need to look into. And by the time he got an official diagnosis of autism, he was 16. Wow, that's three years of uncertainty. Did you have a lot of um, like tests or diagnoses times or was it just there was lots of time in between everything? There was lots of time in between (laughs) Mm-hmm. It wasn't that much uncertainty for us because I think by then we already knew mm-hmm. what we what we were expecting. Right. Um, it was just really wanting to get confirmation of what we knew more for his sake and the help that he would get then. Right. That's the crucial point a lot of the time, isn't it? Is that it's, uh, the diagnosis is really opening doors to other things. For my younger son, the diagnosis was very different because my eldest had already been diagnosed Right, is a genetic predisposition that another mm-hmm. child will have autism. And the indicators were there when he was, just like his brother, when he was around right. two years old. The GP at the time was very, very 
up on this. She knew exactly what was going on. She knew what the indicators were. And right. without any hesitation, she referred us straight away for assessment. So mm. he was diagnosed by the time he was five. Wow. So obviously that wouldn't have been the case if it hadn't have been for his older brother, right? Because you wouldn't have known all those signs because they were subtle. So it was it was a different story. And so when it came to identification up to diagnosis, what was the time period there? It was about 18 months from start to finish okay. for my younger one. So shorter time period. He was given a place at reception in the interim period, which we were not able to take. Well, no, we did take the place, but I did ask them for some consideration because he was going through the diagnosis and they were unwilling to give me that time. I did get an official letter that said, if he's not in school, we will send the education welfare officer to pay you a visit and there will be then legal proceedings and a fine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So instead of support, you got threatened? Yes. Oh, Moon, how was that for you? What, what, what went on for you there? By that time, I was pretty much confident in what I wanted. I spent most of my elder son's early life as a teacher. So that was, that's my previous life. Mm. As a teacher, so I knew what I wanted to do. And having seen the change that my eldest son went through with the lack of understanding and how he went from being a lovely, beautiful, smiley boy to a sullen, withdrawn child who was bullied, we were not prepared to have that happen. So we made the decision to just homeschool my younger child. Right. We weren't prepared to stand for that. And that's what we've done. So they weren't even interested in trying to support you at all or listen? No, they, they said he could come and have a taster day at yeah. reception, which I did take him to. And it was just really overwhelming for him right. with all the noise and the other children. Mm. And his official diagnosis also has separation anxiety as right. part of which we knew from the time he was a baby. And I couldn't leave him at nursery without him having a panic attack. It just wasn't going to work. I did ask them to send work home for him while he went through the diagnosis period. And it was about, I think, eight weeks that they had to wait, mm-hmm. but they weren't willing to do that. So we made the decision to just say his welfare is more important so we're homeschooling so they weren't willing to accommodate his needs this is really shocking to me because this that's their duty of care it is the duty of care yes and as a teacher who had that drilled into me mm. at the beginning of every school year yeah it was just mind-boggling but as the parent who saw the lack of duty of care to my older child until he was in secondary school Mm. it wasn't that shocking so it wasn't shocking but I actually felt empowered to make that choice okay we felt that we had a choice to do what was best for our child rather than be forced to do what the school was demanding and I wish that we had had that when my elder son was in a situation but we didn't because at the time I was a full-time teacher and dad was the stay-at-home parent the whole parenting journey for us has been upside down all the way so tell us a bit about that then um you made that decision to home educate your son and where were you at that point 
I'd left teaching when he was born, partly because I had suffered very serious teacher burnout and I'd also suffered postnatal depression. So it was a perfect storm at the time. Yes, it sounds like it. So you just came out of paid work at that point, is that? I was I was pursuing you know, online tutoring and mm. things like that, the things that teachers do when you leave teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there wasn't kind of a, a full-time job happening mm. in that sense. And it was about having, I think because somewhere I felt a bit of guilt for having missed so much of my elder son's mm. early years, I was determined to try and do it better this time. Yeah, yeah. You, you can only do what you can do in the moment. And if you've got that fortitude and, and the situation to allow you to do that. Loads of people said this to me. Oh, yeah, you're a, you're a teacher. You're a trained teacher. So, of course, you can home educate your kids. I presume you've got that all the time. But it's, <laughs> it's such a different kettle of fish, number one. And number two, like for me... I always felt like, no, you know, me being a teacher might be helpful in some regards, but ultimately you do not need that for home education, right? No, you don't. Not at all. I was trained as a secondary school teacher. Primary school is a whole different ball game for me. <laughs> so how did you go about approaching education for your, for your son then? We still are very much guided by him. That is the best way that I think we go about it. I follow the national curriculum, but in a very loose sense in that okay. I know what year group he's he should be in. And we follow that in math, English, science. This is what you should be learning. Mm-hmm. And we try and make sure that he has some of that in his learning. But a lot of it is also what he wants to learn mm. because that is what he's actually interested in learning so he learns that yeah rather than me sitting him down and saying you have to learn this today yeah and he doesn't want to learn it and it's just not gonna go in there what would a typical day look like to you of learning actually say there is a typical day some days he doesn't want to do what I set out to do Mm -hmm. Um, again being autistic even though there are routines the routines don't necessarily mean that he wants to do the same thing every day it just means that he wants to do this at a certain time but this might not be the same thing that he did yesterday today's learning might not be what he did yesterday it might be something different some days we learn about mythology and that might be taking out his horrible histories and learning about the vikings um, Mm. and then having a talk about and then we go and find out about the, the Viking gods and we have a discussion about their beliefs and their systems. And mm. The Avengers always come in because it's very important to talk about Thor when you talk about the Vikings. <laughs> so, you know, he loves Thor and it's important then because he, it's something that he enjoys. So it makes what he's learning something that is fun. There's always a break for him then to play a little bit with his, his action figures and put some of the learning into place. And mm-hmm. It's it's very different if it's you know if we're doing math today then that can take the, the shape of helping me in the kitchen and doing some weighing or mm. measuring or you know calculating how much I might need of this if I'm going to be making that yeah. learning is just it happens wherever we go if I'm going to the supermarket we're going how long is it going to take us and that's what learning looks like it's not necessarily sit in front of your books and mm. do there is some of that but it isn't all of it how do you work all of that um it's a loose framework Mm -hmm. and a lot of it is trusting myself to know my child Mm -hmm. and to go by how he is on a given day right so some days he's in a really good mood and some days he's not 
So we go by how he is on that day and the framework has to be very flexible. Right. There are days when he's just having a meltdown and no amount of learning can be done on that day. So we have to adapt and that's okay yeah. because that's also part of learning. It's very important that as an autistic person, he learns that too. Right. How to cope with his meltdowns and how to accept them as part of who he is and know what the trigger was today, you know, how to manage this so that it doesn't happen in this way again. So right. that's also part of his learning. Absolutely. And that can be easily forgotten because so many times the meltdowns are just treated as a thing you have to manage. And, and in some instances, some people might punish. You know, that's that's not what we're sort of advocating that people would punish a meltdown. But because of the way it looks, an undiagnosed meltdown might be punished yes, yes. in some circumstances and in schools, some schools potentially. And you, you hear of these horrible stories of kids being put in isolation because of something they've done because they've literally had a meltdown due to a neurological difference. Yes, my eldest has had that experience really? in school as well. An undiagnosed meltdown where he reacted in a very unfortunate way, was disciplined for it, and, you know, the after-school meetings and the other parents that were finger-wagging and your son did this today. I wasn't there for it at the time because I was teaching, but my husband had right. to deal with all of that. It's important that they learn how to cope with their meltdowns. It's important that they learn to accept, accept it and learn yeah. some strategies that actually do support them getting through it and that it's okay they're diagnosed it helps them know that it is okay and it's a normal normal part of them fitting into this nt world neurotypical world when actually they are living in a much wider different world people say that autistic people are structured but actually we're so structured and we don't accept anything that's outside yes you'll have encountered a lot of different opinions judgments over the years so i know this from my own experiences because i my two eldest are also autistic um and i've home educated them because of that but I have felt the wrath of judgment in not just worlds that you think might not understand but even within the home education community I felt that judgment too even when it's much more prevalent to be neurodiverse yes I think it's it's always this judgment that everybody thinks they know better right Yeah, that just puts so much of pressure on you because we always feel that we have to be perfect as mm-hmm. parents. And again, it comes back to the fact that high functioning autism is just, it's a hidden disability. Your child just doesn't look disabled. They don't look autistic. They don't look different in any way. Mm. So people judge based on that and they have absolutely no idea what goes on behind the scenes. And when your child does something that is not within that box that you talk about, it's that judgment that your child is undisciplined or you don't know what you're doing because that's the fear isn't it goes to you being a good enough parent or a bad parent yeah yeah yes and there's always that and it comes from all sides there's always the give me that child for one day and I'll put them right (laughs) the presupposition there is that there is a right way of being and it's like and that everybody else knows that there is this right way and that you just don't know the right way and if you did then you'll be a better person very finger waggy, isn't it? That yes, they don't look autistic. Are you sure they're autistic? What does autistic look like? Do you know anything about autism? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that one. It's all that judgment and all that pressure to just have all the answers and always have it right. And it always, you know, 
always used to be that pressure. And when I was teaching, that was the biggest judgment because when I was teaching, it was in a small little town. I was in one of the two secondary schools and mine had the better reputation of the two. Okay. And that was where the pressure came from and the judgment because at the time my eldest wasn't diagnosed. It was that pressure that I had to be perfect. He had to be perfect because he was a reflection of me and I was a reflection of the school that I was teaching in. I knew there were things. My husband knew that there were things. We knew that his school wasn't listening. The Senko in my school knew there was undiagnosed aspects in my son, but she was in my school, so that was no help. And there was all that pressure every time he did something. It was all that, that I'd have to leave work to go to parent meetings with his head teacher. There was all that frowning and you're just a bad parent and the guilt of you're a full-time teacher, you should be a mother with your child and not your husband. Yes. Wow. You you felt that from them? Or, or was I it got direct? told that. <laughs> really? Yes. Oh my God, the, the layers, the layers <laughs> of, of, of this stemming from people seeing things in such a narrow view, seeing the world in such a narrow view, because you've got, you've got sexism there, the patriarchy involved, as well as this ableism stuff going on to add to it. Because th- we've been told, haven't we, what autism is, but we've been told it in such a skewed way. We've, we see it from from really autistic to non not verbal and then you've got the rain man example on the other end and you just and like there doesn't people don't realize there is quite a lot in between in fact most people are in between yes yes absolutely when they're undiagnosed even when they're diagnosed it's just it's like living in a parallel universe in your little world everything changes Mm. No, you now know what you know and you know what's going on with your child and you're trying to figure that out every yes. day you know you're trying to do the best that you can for your child and watching and learning and trying to figure out triggers and managing it's a lot to do most of the time you do it on your own because your child is high functioning autistic when you want help people kind of go but you don't really need help because your child is fine but you know they don't have the challenges other autistic children have but it's still challenging it's it still a lot for you to do as a parent of an autistic child those challenges are still and you still have to deal with them and you still need help you don't get the help because people think you don't need it and then you have all the other pressure that comes with it because people don't see what the child goes through right because they are so good at masking talk a bit about masking because obviously not everyone who's listening will know what you mean by that masking is where high functioning autistics learn to fit in they learn to kind of mimic is the best word I can Mm. use the norms of society in such a way that they flow seamlessly into everyday life and you don't actually notice that they are struggling that they are mimicking that they are not actually reacting in a natural way so they're like playing a part exactly and the stress that that puts them under where they're following cues that they learn, not cues that come naturally to them. And it's masking because they're literally kind of wearing a mask. Wearing a mask, exactly. So what what have you found as the consequences of your son masking at school? (sighs) The stress. 
the, the pressure that it put on him where he would he was a smiling, happy, laughing boy. And then he just became really, really quiet. So he still doesn't smile all that often. The stress just took its toll. He had a routine that would help him where he would go to school and then come back. And for about two hours after that, he just needed to decompress. So he wouldn't do anything. We would just leave him. We had a, a cat that we got for him. And that really helped because he would spend ages just playing with the cat and stroking him. Mm. And that helped him to decompress. And he would lose himself in his toys and his legs. Mm. But before that, it was a lot. He would sleepwalk. He would wow. um, have nightmares. He would be very restless. He would wander off when we would go off. He would forget what he was doing. He would forget certain things if you asked him to put something away. His mind would just be so consumed with all of the stresses of the days. that. So we had to put in place things to help him to cope. It's a lot. I mean, at the time, he was only six or seven. And that's yeah. it for a little boy to cope with. Yeah. And presumably, when he's masking, the school are seeing a very different child to the one you're seeing. And so I've heard so many times from friends that they're told, dismissed by the special needs departments because they appear as functioning and they're just like their peers. And sometimes maybe they're not paying attention, but you know, that's normal. <laughs> but that that would be a definition of like a kid who's autistic, who's masking. Yes. When the parent comes in and says, that's not what they're like at all at home. Yeah, but teachers always think they know better. <laughs> <laughs> they do. And the one thing that I've learned and I say to parents is trust yourself. You know your child better than anybody else mm. does. And my husband and I, we kept on at it year and year because that's exactly what we got told mm-hmm. every single time. We are told he was, he's just, he's very, very bright. He's just unfocused. He's, he's disruptive. Um, he can't stay in his seat. He walks around. He interrupts other children during the lessons. And, and that's not acceptable. And I would keep on saying those are indicators that you need yeah. to look at. You know, those are signs that yeah. there's something that needs to be assessed. No, no, no. It's just he needs better discipline. Because they were looking in this linear way of what they'd been told and what they'd been experiencing experiencing and perhaps they'd experience other things but they they, they're all maybe they haven't got parents who are badgering them and so they look similar from that perspective so obviously it's not all teachers you're a teacher I was a teacher like so not all teachers I just want to make that clear to all the teachers (laughs) listening (laughs) but if you were to do something about that what do you think you do to to support teachers understanding better the same thing that I say to my children and I say to the parents that I coach is that every child is an individual Every single one is an individual. You cannot judge a child based on what you know about other children because autism presents differently in everyone. I have two, you have two. Mm -hmm. And I I can almost guarantee that it doesn't show the same in your two. No, definitely not. It definitely doesn't in my two. They are different. Because I think sometimes people think that being autistic means you have this trait, this trait, this trait, and this trait. But it's like, it's not like that. It's okay, there's like 20 odd traits you could have and you might display three or four five six however many of them but your seven might be different to your seven and might be different to your seven those combinations is the combinations that are the differing factor and people don't generally recognize that and that's why they look in that way because they know headline don't they yes the ones spinning the flapping the ordering stuff they know those oh yeah that you know i I know those ones the non-verbal you know we 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 got that i got it i got autism i know yeah (laughs) 
but yeah no <laughs> yeah that's the thing though isn't it i mean no matter how similar how same the diagnosis each individual is just going to be so completely that individual right and unique and that's before you even add on what they call co-occurrences which is the additional conditions like your two have pathological demand avoidance and my one has ocd the other has um, anxiety disorder they both have addictive personality types but they just present so differently mm. you just need to know each individual child you need to exactly. take the time to learn each child and i yeah. know teachers have no time i know that it's really really hard but that's also where parents come in to listening because we can, as parents we do have to be their conduit to a certain degree because we do. because kids they don't they don't understand how to communicate their needs as well um yeah. and then as a neurotypical parent which is me i find it difficult because i don't fully understand and comprehend how to best communicate them or fully know them yeah you know i try really hard i don't i don't know potentially as well as say their dad who's neurodiverse right he gets that part of it more than yeah. i could ever do yeah yeah it's very important though parents really have to you have to pay attention you have to learn you have to learn your child you have to know your child and you have to a lot of parents panic when they get this diagnosis and you know they kind of rush off and do what the teachers do and look it all up online and read the books and ask everybody how do you deal with this and how do you deal with that and my child is doing this what do I do mm. but the thing about it is nobody's answer is going to help your child because yeah that child is individual there's a little bit like of me that has struggled throughout my time as a parent with not recognizing my own need in there because I totally was living breathing supporting my kids I recognized after a, a long time that this was not serving them and it was actually doing them a disservice how do you find that balance between being their everything their conduit or whatever it is between the other things in their life whether it's school whether it's clubs whatever it is being that and being a really key instrumental element in their lives and actually still being you it's taken me a long time and I still struggle with it and I think that's the reality of a parenting journey and especially when you are not high functioning autistic mm -hmm. is you still every day you still struggle with it yourself it's not something that you ever get right and you know that's it I'm done dusted I have all the answers yes. but the things that I found is that sometimes the time for me is with them and that is sometimes just sharing what they want to talk about and kind of laughing with them about it and joking with them about it that gives me time for me because I'm not being their conduit I'm just being their mom and I'm having some downtime to just be with my children mm. I'm not interpreting I'm not I'm not answering I'm not looking for triggers I'm just mm. having fun with my kids yeah just and being that, there yeah. being there rather than actually okay I've got to try and help them to learn this and understand this and I've got to help other people understand this there's a lot of interpreting actually that, that's pretty much our job we interpret our kids to their teachers and our teachers to their to the kids and we interpret our kids to themselves too yeah and unlike when you have neurotypical children I, I gather because I don't have any that in your parenting journey there comes a point where they grow up and your parenting journey kind of eases but with autistic children that's it <laughs> that's your parenting journey for yeah. life yeah you carry on with that yeah. yeah you'll carry on with that yes yeah get to know it get comfy <laughs> get comfy get pull up an armchair in the interpreting emotions and yep. all the other bits and yep. how to relate how to have a conversation yeah. and then of course there's there's the added complication that sometimes comes like with my eldest because he was diagnosed so late he still sometimes really resists his diagnosis right. and that adds a big complication 
complication to it. There are so many times when he still does things and expects the outcome to be what a neurotypical person gets. And then he gets frustrated and he gets angry and disappointed because it's not the same outcome. Mm. And then we have to go through that whole cycle of expectation and understanding his neurodivergence. And it's what happens when people don't, you know, schools and organizations and even the NHS and assessments, they don't actually understand the damage that it does when you miss that diagnosis and the child has to learn to fit into society. And then they're diagnosed and they're suddenly told, but you're not neurotypical, you're neurodivergent. And I live with this new reality, but that shift is not happening as easily. That must be really hard because you basically brought them up to lie to everybody because of the masking, right? And now you're saying, oh no, you don't have to do that anymore because you were behaving normally. We just didn't understand you. Like what? That's completely mind-blowing after that period of time. So what do you think you can take forward from from now knowing those experiences and how do you, I mean, because you've alluded to the fact that you are a parent coach, parents of autistic kids. What do you do to support them? The foundation of it is exactly what I said. It starts with that realisation that your child is your child. Nobody else's child is exactly the same as yours. The answers that you need to help your child are not in the books or with other people. And that's what my coaching practice is based on is helping parents of autistic children to learn how to help their children by learning what their children's triggers are, what their children need, how to know their child. Mm -hmm. And that is the biggest thing that your child needs. Because when you get a diagnosis of autism, it's not just your world that changes, it's theirs. Mm -hmm. And they have absolutely no idea what to do. So they look to you, you know, you're the guide, you're the one that's got to lead the way. And if you're running around looking for answers, constantly spending your time on Google going, how do I do this? You're missing all the things that your child needs you to be there for. They don't really want you to have all the answers in the book. They just want you to be there to have the answers they need. But you can't do that if you're not paying attention to your child. You can't do that if you don't know your child. You can't do that if you don't know that my child doesn't like labels against their skin. So what I need to do is cut off all the labels from their clothes and make sure that they're comfortable. It's, It's things like taking the time away from what we normally do because it's our habit isn't it every time something comes up we just go straight onto google and go how do i do this and yeah. google's got all the answers but they don't have the answers for your child if you can learn to do that then at the same time you are teaching your child to learn to know themselves right. and what works for them and what doesn't work for them and that is more important than yeah. saying find the answer here find the answer there because that's never going to work right and that happened with my son you know when he got his diagnosis he went onto all the online things that was recommended and I noticed that I don't know if you've noticed with yours that sometimes with high functioning autistics especially the one that doesn't know how to you know doesn't understand emotions they tend to mimic what other people say they should be feeling Mm. or what they should be doing and that's what mine did so what he started presenting wasn't necessarily him but rather what other people said autistic people should have should be presenting should be showing and we had to kind of cut all of that off and just say enough no more no more online searches no more anything just you and me and that's it yeah that sounds like it's troubling I know yeah my eldest does go 
on Google a lot for things, but really hasn't done the exploring about emotion element on there, but has relied on me. I think she's slowly getting into knowing herself a bit more and actually recognizing. I think I've said enough times that a tummy ache actually means worried. (laughs) She will still like say, oh, I've got a tummy ache. Yes, that means I'm worried. So she will still go through that process. It won't be automatically I'm worried. She's still got to identify it's the tummy ache. That always comes first. Yeah, it is. It is difficult having so much information at their fingertips, but actually you've still got to be the interpreter. You've actually got to support them with that journey. And if you're doing it at that late stage from 16, that's difficult because they're already at that sort of point of looking outward or less accepting stuff from the home. I use reverse psychology with mine Mm. um, quite often and that that still works. Yeah. 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 So, you know, when I when I really want, especially with my eldest, my, my youngest is very good. He's very empathetic. So reverse psychology doesn't work with him, but my eldest, it does. Mm-hmm. When I really want him to do something, I'm absolutely adamant. This is awful. It's really, really, how can they put something like this out there? You know, this is really, really bad information. Honestly, look at the misinformation that people have to deal with. <laughs> and the first thing he does is he goes straight on there to see what it's all about. Oh, yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah, my, my, my eldest gets really incensed by misinformation. So, yeah, that would <laughs> And that's just, that's just, you know, that's just his, his way. Um, but if I say, this is a really, really good thing, you should look at it. And he, he'll like, mm, I'll think about it. And I know he just, he won't. Yeah. Even if I put it right there in front of him, yeah. say, you should look at this. His younger brother will. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> he just won't. I'm sure some people just with teens who aren't autistic will probably feel, feel quite a bit of that. I'm sure. <laughs> that's that's certainly true moon i want to um ask you some um quick fire questions if that's okay what do you think is the worst thing about being a parent the lack of privacy oh god yeah (laughs) all the stories that are flooding into my head right now oh my word um yeah i I think it's worse because they're they're autistic so that concept of privacy just (laughs) And I'm, I'm the only female in my home. So, you know, showers and things like that. So like, always locked doors now. <laughs> yeah. What is the best thing about being a parent? So the opposite, really. I don't know how to explain it. It's an intangible. Mm. Um, it's not something that I can actually put my finger on. It's, it's the feeling you get on days when you know that something you've done has had an impact on them and it's it yeah. lights them up from inside and that's just the best thing oh totally yeah it makes it feel worthwhile yeah I'm totally with you there so parenting did it break you down lift you up or both in equal measure or otherwise both in equal measure yeah I am where I am because I have been broken down and lifted up yeah. and it does it still does I don't think that you can ever go through the parenting journey with that being broken down and being lifted up yeah you have to go right down into your little pieces you can sit you in parts and then come back up as a different human right what is your favorite thing about you moon sense of humor you certainly need that (laughs) it's there it's necessary it's a survival tool it is my favorite thing about me because it's completely off the wall and strangely enough it's it's the thing that both my boys get which is something (laughs) 
I, I, I often wonder what that says about me, but <laughs> oh, that's really good. Yeah, no, no one. I don't think anyone in my house shares any sense of humor. So we find that really <laughs> difficult. We're all at odds with each other when it comes to humor. <laughs> the only exception is like physical humor, which you know is quite yeah. quite universal. But with that exception, it's like no one likes puns. One detests them with a passion, and you know your whole it's like so slapstick all the way for your own house. What do you think the most important job of a parent is to be there for your children good or bad and to love them and accept them mm. and to give them an acceptance of themselves yeah can we do that can we give them an acceptance of themselves I'm working on it <laughs> I was going to say me too working on it work in progress dot, dot, dot. every day is a work in progress yeah yeah I think it's a brave person that can say I've got it done very brave very brave especially in this world but um <laughs> Well, I'm I'm getting it done every day in as much as I possibly can. Is definitely work in progress. Yes. Yeah, working document. <laughs> Still going. That's awesome. Moon, obviously you've told us a little bit about what you do. Do you want to just expand a little bit now and plug what you've you do? Um, I've taken all of my experiences and what I've learned as a teacher as well and taken it into a coaching and mentoring business. So mm-hmm. I am a parenting health and wellness coach. And what I do is support and help parents of high functioning and specifically high functioning autistic children, whether they've been diagnosed or not, mm-hmm. um, to help them to learn how to navigate this journey of parenting high functioning autistic children to find the answers that they need to help their children, to help their children to understand themselves, to help them to understand mm. what their children need and that is my day job my night job (laughs) my life I know what I went through I know how difficult it is Mm. on your own it's really really hard and it's very isolating because parents of high functioning autistic children are often overlooked even in the autistic community Mm -hmm. you know you kind of the unseen unheard part of that community and I want to give them somewhere where they are seen and heard and they can come and say this is really what I'm struggling with today and know that there's somebody there that can help them and wants to help them mm. that they don't have to go through what I have went through and yeah. whatever I know whatever I've learned I want to use that to help mm. people I can hear how close it is to your heart and how much this work means to you and it sounds like it's incredible support and I'm sure um, we'll have lots of people wanting to reach out to you so where do they go to to find out about you and get in touch with you the best place to find me is on LinkedIn mm-hmm. it's just Moon said I believe I'm the only Moon on LinkedIn but if I'm not it's moon said um and just connect with me on LinkedIn send me a message and I am more than happy then to set up a chat with anybody that wants to connect with me and we can take it from there that is perfect um I also have a Facebook group that parents can join called autism in disguise and that is a community to support parents of high functioning autistics on Facebook that's fantastic thank you so much for that information as well it's been wonderful getting to know you moon and chatting with you about your story and I wish you every success with your business and with your kids as they grow older and um, bring brand new challenges every single day. <laughs> oh, without a doubt. Thank you so much, Beth. I've really enjoyed our time together. Ya vi que estás aquí.
Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast with me, Beth Hardy. And if you want to connect with me more, you can get along to any of my socials, Your Family Wellbeing Coach on TikTok and Instagram. And you can find me at Stop the Triggers on Facebook. I hope to connect with you very soon. If you have a question that you want answering, we might be able to do a podcast all about that. So please do drop me a line. I'm so grateful for everyone who listens to this podcast. See if you can rate and subscribe so we can make it bigger and better every week. Get it, get it, get it.